This morning, Acts chapter 16, verses 25 through 40. Let's bow together in prayer and we'll study the Word of God together. Our Father, we come to you with grateful hearts, grateful for the privilege and opportunity we have to be together, to worship you, to exalt you through song, through the teaching of your word, through ministering to our children and our youth. We give you praise. We give you praise for what you do in each of our lives. We give you praise for the joys that we have, the victories. We give you praise for the challenges that we have that don't seem so victorious at the time. But we thank you that you are always in our lives. You are always there to love, encourage, and empower us to be the kind of set-apart people that you desire. So help us, Father, to be set apart to you. Help us to be set apart to your word so that we can be worthy witnesses to the world around us of the reality of faith and the need to trust your son Jesus as their savior as we have done. Help us to grow to know you more deeply and to love you more each day. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. As you look at Acts chapter 16 and verse 25, we read these words. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Now, if you stop right there, you would say, well, they must have had a productive day of ministry, celebrating the advance of the gospel. Folks saved, the gospel shared with the people around them, and they're having a prayer and praise service in gratitude to God. At least that's what you'd think if you didn't read the rest of the sentence. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. They're in prison. They're in prison when they are singing these hymns and praise songs to God. They're in prison. They have been beaten, stripped, and beaten with rods. They are black and blue. They are in stocks, as uncomfortable as it could be. And they are singing praise to God. Does that sound like us? Despite their brutal treatment, Paul and Silas responded by prayer and responded by singing hymns to God. Rather than despair or complaining or doubting God or calling down God's judgment upon their torturers, their response was one of joy. That's the amazing part about what we see in Paul and Silas in Philippi. You remember what had happened. Paul cast a demon out of a slave girl, a demon that uh, allowed her to tell the future, 
and he cast the demon out of her, and her owners lost their source of income through her, and so they rabble-roused the city against Paul and Silas, and we read in verse 22, the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas. The magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten, and after they had been severely flogged, not just flogged, but severely flogged, and by the way, the, literally there it's beaten with rods. Beaten with rods. Remember they had lictors to, of the four uh, uh, political heads of the city, of a Roman city, two of them were called lictors. They carried a bundle of rods. In the middle of the rods was a, a, uh, an axe, which uh, signified their right to punish lawbreakers both by corporal punishment and by capital punishment. And what they would do, these lictors, they would take these rods and they would beat prisoners to a pulp. And so we read here they were severely flogged and thrown into prison. And the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in stocks. In other words, he put them in the most secure place that you could. Some believe it may have been a dungeon, but a most secure cell in the place. And he fastened their feet in stocks. And these stocks were uh, boards with many, many holes, not just two for the feet, but they had many holes so that they could be as painful to the prisoner as possible and as uncomfortable to the prisoner as possible. In the midst of that situation, Paul and Silas are praying and singing praise to God. Now remember the key thought in chapter 16 of the book of Acts is this, we must be faithful in the face of opposition. You and I as believers must be faithful in the face of persecution and suffering of every kind. We must be faithful because God is faithful to us. God is faithful to us. God gives victory, we saw last week, over Satan. And this week we're going to see that God gives victory over suffering. God gives victory over Satan, God gives victory over suffering, and you and I must be faithful to Him because He's faithful to us. The gospel triumphs in spite of opposition and suffering and pain. The gospel triumphs. Well, in verses 25 to 28, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. Now some have questioned, why did, why did Paul and Silas not plead their Roman citizenship? You see, Roman citizenships weren't allowed to be punished in that way. They weren't uh, allowed to be punished without a trial. Why didn't Paul and Silas say, hey, hold it a second. As the lictors are getting the rods, why didn't they say, wait, we're Roman citizens. Well, we don't know the answer to that. Some think that they were waiting for a more opportune time. I don't know what could be a more opportune time when they're getting the rods ready to beat you to a pulp. 
but some think they were waiting for a more opportune time. Others think that there was no time, that the whole situation was chaotic and confused. I have a tendency to, to, to think that that's at least some of it. The whole situation was so chaotic and confused that nobody was listening to Paul and Silas. But I think there's a third reason that is even more important than the others. And the reason is this, the divine reason. There was a jailer with a need. There was a jailer with a need of a Savior. And I think they may have been the reason. By the way, whenever things come into your life, or the lives of people you know and you don't understand them and you, you, you can't figure out what's going on, always ask yourself, what is God doing in this situation? When you can't understand what's happening in your life, ask, what is God doing in this situation? Because God is at work through you. God is at work through me. And he's using the situations, not just the, the pleasant ones, not just the, the enjoyable ones, but he's using the situations in our lives to accomplish his will in our life and to accomplish his will in the lives of others. He has something to accomplish in the life of a Philippian jailer. Remember a couple of weeks ago we were introduced to Lydia Chris in his sermon introduced us to Lydia in Philippi. And God reached the upper scale, the up and outers. You know, we talk about the down and outers. Well, he reached the up and outers in Lydia because they need the gospel too. We all often don't think about that. Now today we're going to see him reaching to the down and outers who need the gospel. Well, I think the reason that they didn't claim their Roman citizenship or, or pleaded at that time is that not that they were waiting for a more opportune time, not just because of the confusion, but God was doing something. God was doing something. So in spite of their brutal treatment, they had joy. You'd think after being treated in such a way, after being brutally beaten in that way, after being stripped publicly and beaten, you'd think that they would be cursing and moaning and complaining and doubting God. When things don't go right in your life and in my life, isn't that where we go to so many times? We moan about it. We complain about it. We doubt God's plan for our lives we doubt what god is doing in our lives but we don't see that here no complaining no doubting no calling god's judgment down upon their enemies instead they're praying and they're singing hymns to god folks this is this is witness this is what it means to witness That's what they're doing here. They're witnessing. In the midst of life's difficulties, we can show the world around us that our God is good and cares for us. In the midst of difficulties in our lives, 
We can show the world around us. We can be a witness to the world around us when everybody else is complaining. We can have a song. I like what Charles Haddon Spurgeon said. It's easy to sing when we can read the notes by daylight, but the skillful singer is he who can sing when there is not a ray of light to read by. Songs in the night come only from God. They are not in the power of men. And then he said, any fool can sing in the day. But you and I can sing in the night, in the darkness, in the pain, in the suffering. Whatever kind comes into our lives, we can sing. Because God gives us joy. Paul and Silas endured this for the sake of the gospel. And that leads us to ask the question, what would we endure for the sake of the gospel? What would we endure? Are we willing to accept the beating for the sake of the gospel? Are we willing to accept ridicule for the sake of the gospel? What would we endure for the sake of the gospel. The Bible has a lot to say about suffering and about how God uses suffering in our lives. I want to just take a few minutes of our time this morning, well, a good half of our time probably, to talk about what God does through suffering in our lives, what it is that, what the place of suffering and hardships in our lives. You may have found since becoming a believer that life isn't a bowl of cherries. Life is a challenge. And some things may have come into your life that you don't like. You wish were not there. What does God do during suffering? What is the place of suffering and hardships in the Christian life? Leroy Imes said this, Remember the account of the Apostle Paul and Silas being beaten and cast into prison at Philippi. Acts 16.25 says, About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Why weren't they complaining, griping, and demanding their legal rights? Somehow, they were able to detect the merciful hand of God in all of this. Somehow, they were able to detect the merciful hand of God in what was happening to them. Let me share a couple of things. Number one about suffering. Suffering in the Bible is linked to glory. Suffering in the Bible is linked to glory. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, Paul said, For our light and momentary troubles. I, I always love that. You know, when we read through the Bible, we, we, we're, we're trying to get through our two or three or four chapters for the day. we got to get through this. It wasn't supposed to take me. Joe said I could do it in seven minutes. I've already taken 20. <laughs> we're just trying to get through it. And we read right over, Paul said, our light 
and momentary troubles. Sometime you want to see how light his troubles were. Please not now. But sometime look at 2 Corinthians chapters 10 and 11 in that area of 2 Corinthians. And you'll see what Paul endured for the sake of the gospel. Paul, how he could call those light and momentary, I won't know until heaven, I think. But our light and momentary troubles, he said, are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. In other words, the glory that we will have that God will give us in eternity will far outweigh whatever pain we've experienced here. Secondly, about suffering, Paul is a great example to us, a great encouragement to us. He experienced more suffering than we can even imagine. 1 Thessalonians 3.3, Paul said that he was appointed to suffering. In fact, when he was arrested on the road to Damascus, God stopped him, arrested him, and called him to faith. God said to him, God said to Ananias when he sent him to Paul, he said, I want to show him how many things he must suffer for my name. How's that for a witness? Paul said, I was appointed for suffering. 2 Corinthians 1.8, rather, Paul said that he was so crushed by life that he despaired of living. We don't think about that Paul often, do we? 2 Timothy 1.8, Paul said to Timothy, do not be ashamed and testify about our Lord or ashamed of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel. Paul is a great example to us in the experience of suffering. Number three, suffering is not an intrusion into the Christian life. It is the norm. Suffering is not an intrusion into our Christian lives. It is the norm. John 16, 33, Jesus said in the world, you shall have tribulation, but be not afraid, I have overcome the world. Matthew 16, 24, Jesus said, take up your cross. The cross precedes the crown. 2 Timothy 3, 12, Paul said, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be what? Persecuted. Persecuted. You know, these, these aren't the truths that we like to trumpet to others, are they? But these are the truths of the Scripture. James chapter 1, verses 2-4, to four, James says, Consider trials pure joy. What are you smoking, James? <laughs> Consider trials, pure joy. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 12, Peter said, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. You see, suffering is not an intrusion into the Christian life. It is the norm in the Christian life. Number four, our suffering is a participation in Jesus' suffering. That's what it means when it says in the Scripture to fill up the sufferings of Christ. It's not that Christ didn't suffer enough. It's that when you and I suffer, we are continuing what has happened to our Savior. 
And the world is continuing to persecute him through us. Number five. I almost don't know if these words go together. The benefits of suffering. I don't know. I'll let that up to you. Could there be benefits to suffering? Well, the Bible talks about benefits to suffering. Romans chapter 5 and verse 3, suffering produces perseverance, which produces character, which produces hope. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, we receive comfort from God so that we can comfort others. A third benefit of suffering. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 tells us that suffering produces faith and love. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4 tells us that trials, the tests of our faith, develop perseverance, and perseverance develops maturity in our lives. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 7 tells us that suffering in our lives proves the genuineness of our faith and brings glory to God. Those are the benefits of suffering. In another place, Leroy Imes was sharing a story from his own life. He said, Once I drove a small car from Colorado to Arizona for my son-in-law. In New Mexico, I encountered violent crosswinds that reminded me of a time Kathy and I were driving from California back here through New Mexico and got wound up in the only dust storm I re- I've ever been in in my life. And it was terrifying. It was terrifying. Anyhow, he says, I was driving this car back through New Mexico. It was all I could do to keep the car in the road, and suddenly I noticed a hawk flying right in front of me with his wings spread majestically, and he wasn't moving a feather. The winds that almost blew me off the road were just carrying that hawk higher and higher, and I thought, for Christians, tough times are supposed to do that, just bring us higher and higher, closer to the Lord. In another place, we read this, the very encounters that we resist because of their pain are the ones that can lead us to a changed life and a deeper fellowship with the Lord. Those are the benefits of suffering. Oswald Chambers said this, huge waves that would frighten an ordinary swimmer produce a tremendous thrill for the surfer who has ridden them. Let's apply that to our own circumstances. The things we try to avoid and fight against, tribulation, suffering, persecution, are the very things that produce abundant joy in us. We are more than conquerors through Him in all these things, not in spite of them, but in the midst of them. seems hard to say, but there are benefits to suffering. There are benefits to suffering. 
Now, I'd like to share an illustration with you. It's from a TV show, and it's fiction. It's not, it's not uh, nonfiction. It's a fiction story. It's a, it's a little show called When Hope Calls. Anybody ever see When Hope Calls? Nobody here. Oh, some of you. Okay, good. When Hope Calls. It was on GAC Family uh, Channel. And they were, uh, there's an orphanage featured in the show When Hope Calls. And it was around Christmas time. And for some reason, Roy had been a particularly, one of the children in an orphanage, had been through a particularly hard time in his life. And one of the men in town was playing Santa Claus and he would take requests from children and he hated being Santa Claus, but he did it for whatever reason. And he said this in the story, all the kids who have come to me ask for something for themselves except the orphanage kids. The orphanage kids, orphanage kids to a child ask for a pony for Roy. And the man said this, I don't understand it. These kids have suffered more than anyone else. See, it's a benefit of suffering that it makes us more in tune with the needs of others as we ourselves suffer. What are the biblical responses to suffering? What does the Bible say? about our responses to suffering. Romans chapter 5 and verse 3 tells us that we are to rejoice in suffering. That's a challenge. I think Paul and Silas got that one right, didn't they? They're praying and they're singing praise songs to God, together to God. Romans 5, 8. James 1 and 2 says our response to suffering should be considering it joy. 1 Peter 4.13 says we ought to rejoice in suffering. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 19 says that we must commit ourselves to God and continue to do good in spite of suffering. Paul and Silas are a great example to us of what suffering can produce and what God wants to do in our lives because of and through suffering. Well, verse 26, Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundation of the prison, foundations of the prison were shaken. At once all the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose. This is kind of parallel to some experiences Peter had as angels twice let him out of prison. And Peter himself didn't even know what was going on. In Acts chapter in Acts chapter 12.
earthquake comes. God sends an earthquake. The prison is shaken to the foundations. And you can see how the prison doors would be loosed from their hinges and they flew open and everybody's chains came loose. At that point, verse 27, the jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. You see, the penalty for a jailer who lost his prisoners or who allowed them to escape was death. Was death. So the jailer believes that they have all gone. And that he must pay with his life. And that he would pay with his life. Yet what do we read? Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself. We are all here. Now at this point, you could imagine that Paul could say to himself, as too many of us might say to ourselves, oh good, let him kill himself. Look what he put me through. But not Paul, not Silas. They recognized an opportunity in this man's life. They recognized that at this point in this man's life, he was thinking about eternity and eternal things. By the way, don't be surprised if you're praying for somebody. If you're praying for some unbeliever that you know, and you want to see them come to faith in Jesus Christ, you want to see their lives change, you know they need Jesus you know that they will not spend eternity with Him. And you begin to pray for them, and then all of a sudden, something horrible comes into their lives. And you say, that's not what I prayed for. That's exactly what you prayed for. You didn't know it. But God takes those experiences in the lives of the unbelievers we know, the unbelievers that we are praying for, and He brings them through experiences that where they will be faced with eternity. Where they will be faced with their eternal choice. J. Vernon McGee said, let's look at this Philippian jailer for a moment. He was responsible for those prisoners. He naturally assumed that if the doors were open and chains lying loose, the prisoners would be gone. He would be responsible for their escape and would have to forfeit his own life. So he stands there poised, ready to fall on his sword. When a man is in a position like that, he thinks about eternity. This man did just that, as his question to Paul indicates. You see, the earthquakes in our lives and the earthquakes in the lives of the people that you and I care about, that you and I pray for, whether they're believers or unbelievers, the earthquakes in our lives, the earthquakes in their lives are designed to turn our thoughts to God. 
Those unwelcome things are designed to turn our thoughts to God. Verse 29, the jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Think about what brought him to that moment. Think about what brought him to that moment. Paul and Silas, ministering the gospel in the city, encounter a demon-possessed girl who's destroying their opportunity to preach God's message of the gospel. Paul casts a demon out of her, thus keeping her owners from income. They wind up being stripped and beaten put into stocks, thrown into an inner cell, they are singing songs of praise to God in spite of their suffering. God sends an earthquake. The doors to the jail open. And all because God was reaching out to a jailer who needed Christ. All because God was reaching out to a jailer who needed Jesus Christ. Facing death, he thinks of eternal things. God had prepared him, and God had prepared Paul and Silas. They could show him the way to peace, they could show him the way to security. And the jailer asks, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now verse 31, I think, is the key passage in all of Scripture about what is necessary for a person to come, become a child of God, for a person to be saved. What must they do? Verse 31 is the answer to that. They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Not believe and be baptized. Not believe and dedicate your life. Not believe and make Jesus the Lord of your life. Not believe and believe and believe and as we looked at <coughs> excuse me, a couple of weeks ago. Not believe and but believe in is the key passage in the Word of God on salvation by grace through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's the key to salvation, is to believe in Christ, to put faith in Christ. You see, at the cross, God put away our guilt and of sin as He laid sin upon His our sin upon His Son, and He offers reconciliation to us by faith alone. The jailer was to acknowledge that Jesus is God and put his trust in Jesus Christ. 
The jailer was to acknowledge that Jesus is God and put his trust in Jesus Christ. As one writer said, the answer was that there was nothing the jailer needed to do. Everything necessary for his salvation had been done for him by Christ. All that was required was to believe in Jesus. And the same offer was extended to everyone in his house. That's what it means when, it, when they say, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. He's not saying that if the jailer comes to faith, that automatically everybody in his household will be saved. That's not at all what it means here. He's saying that the same offer that, they, that Paul and Silas are extending to the jailer is the same offer that's being extended to their family members. Now, by the way, when he says you and your family, in that day, you and your, your household, a household included more than children. We get, we get the picture of uh, our nuclear families when we, when we look at a passage like this. In that day, it included everybody in the household whether it was children of the, of the householder, whether it was servants of the householder, or people who are indebted to the householder for some reason or another and had a relationship with them. It was more than just the man and his children. And what Paul is saying here, and Silas is saying, is that believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved if you believe in Him and the offer is extended to your household as well if, you, if they believe. They can be saved as well. Now, this was a familiar pattern in Acts where the head of the household believes and the rest of the household follows suit but each must exercise faith. And that's made clear in this passage as we see from verse 31, those who responded could believe. In verse 32, those who responded could understand the spoken word. And verse 34, they could believe and they could rejoice. That would eliminate and that would answer the question of do, uh, do infants automatically get saved if their parents get saved? These in the house were able to believe. They could understand the spoken word, those who responded to Paul's invitation, and they could believe and rejoice. Now, Chris shared with us a familiar pattern in the book of Acts that we saw in earlier in chapter 16 with Lydia, and that is the gospel is Proclaim there is a faith response and it's followed by baptism. That's what we have here. <coughs> Excuse me, a gospel proclamation, a faith response, followed by baptism. So this is a familiar passage, a familiar pattern in the book of Acts. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. You and your household, that is the offer is extended to them as well. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to them and, and to all the others in the house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his family were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house, set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family." 
he and the people in his household who could understand the spoken word, who could, re who could respond by belief and faith, <coughs> who could rejoice, came to faith and were baptized as a sign of their faith and as their identity with their Savior, Jesus Christ. In the one-year study Bible, the devotional writer says this, if you have never trusted in Jesus to save you, don't wait to do so. If you have trusted in Jesus, your life and your eternity are in His hands. The peace and joy that comes from knowing Jesus is Lord might even be a testimony to someone else who is looking for salvation. Another writer said, we must trust in Jesus as a living person who saves from the power and penalty of sin. He's a living person. Trust Him now. Well, verse 35, when it was daylight, <coughs> excuse me, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave in peace. But, verse 37, Paul said to the officers, Excuse me, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens and threw us into prison, and now they want to get rid of us quietly. No, let them come themselves and escort us out. Now Paul talks about his Roman citizenship. Now Paul says, you had no right to do this to us. Now why does he raise it at this time? when he didn't raise it earlier? Why does he wait for this moment? Well, as many believe, Paul waited for that moment and, and uh, talked about his Roman citizenship as a help to the church. The, the young embryonic church in Philippi needed his strength for them, needed God's strength. And what Paul was doing by asserting his Roman citizenship is he was helping out the church. You see, the leaders, the magistrates, the officers of Philippi would be hard-pressed to go after the church after what they had done to Paul and Silas because what they did to them should never be done to a Roman citizen. And if Paul had wanted to press it, they would have been in real difficulty. And so what Paul was doing is he was a making, way, making a way to protect the young church after he would go. And that's what he did. The officers reported this to the magistrates. When they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. Do you think they're going to be interested in going after the church at that point? I don't think so. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house where they met the brothers and encouraged them, and then they left. 
What we see in Acts chapter 16, we see how God uses suffering in your life and my life to draw him, draw us closer to him and to draw others to him as they look on at our lives and see our faith. We see in Acts chapter 16 that the gospel triumphs in spite of suffering and pain and difficulties. We see in Acts chapter 16 the power of God and His victory over Satan. We see in Acts chapter 16 that God gives victory over suffering. We just need to be faithful and trust Him. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for the example of Paul and Silas. the way they endured suffering for your sake, for the sake of your plan, for the sake of your reaching out to the lives around us. May we be used of you, Lord, to those around us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.